This Sunday concludes our uh, series on the Acts of Shalom. And uh, that's a very, a very Bible word, isn't it? Shalom. Um, but it has to do with the flourishing and well-being, both in ourselves and relationally, um, that God promises, a state of things being right and healthy in the world. And we have spent six weeks looking through certain chapters in the book of Acts about how the Holy Spirit has been at work in the early church and is still today in bringing shalom. And we talked about how God brings shalom to the heart, our hearts, like he did with Simon the magician, how God's shalom is offered to everybody, even the outsider, like the Ethiopian eunuch. And we've explored how God's invitation and promise of shalom can make space for doubt. If we have questions and we wrestle with things, how we engage with a world of money and power, which seem very loud and threatening, and um, how God's shalom confronts systems of evil. And as we've prayed this morning, um, we've had lots of opportunity to reflect on uh, confronting systems of evil, haven't we? This week was hard. You know, black people should be able to go to the grocery store and Asian American elders should be able to worship and children should be able to go to school without confronting evil. And the longing that we have for peace in this world, for things to be right, is real. It's real. Neil started this whole series um, of shalom by sketching for us this picture of what the biblical promise of shalom is, of flourishing and wellness and health, relational rightness with one another, rightness um, just in ourselves and with God. And he made the point, and it's true, that we all long for this in some way, don't we? We can see that this is what the world needs, and, uh, and we want it. But the question is, how do we get it? That's the question. How does this life of shalom, the good life uh, of well-being and harmony and flourishing, how does it come into being? And that's an excellent question. And it's a question that philosophers and sages and musicians and politicians uh, through the ages have grappled with. How do we create a good life? How do we make the world good? What will it take? The Greeks actually had a special word for it. They called it eudaimonia, which is fancy Greek language for the good life that we're chasing, right? Um, And from Plato and Aristotle and Socrates through to the Epicureans and Stoics that we meet in today's passage to Buddha and the Dalai Lama and the whole earth festival right here and the self-help section of every bookstore, which is the biggest selling genre in fiction, as well as the promises at every election poll with people promising a vision of a working good society. Like There are all sorts of different stories about how we pursue shalom and the good life. We all know we want it. The question is, how do we get there? It's what John Lennon sang about all those years ago. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of men. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. John Lennon dreamed of shalom. He's not the only one. We've been doing it for a long time, but the problem is we can't agree on how to find it. And we do empathy training, and we send people to anger management classes, we go to therapy, we invest in social and emotional learning curriculum at school, we buy t-shirts that remind us to choose kindness, 
and we call our senators about gun reform and we work hard to alleviate poverty and we work against trafficking and we want to address violence and fatherlessness in our communities and we put up lawn signs and we practice peace and some of us get to be teachers and philosophers or pastors or social workers and we do our best to practice shalom in the places we have influence too, don't we? And we can see the wisdom of tolerance and kindness as a way to community harmony. And we want peace and flourishing, but we have such different ideas on what that means. And so, at least here, in this community where we live, we often land up just settling into a live and let live mindset. You do you, I'll do me, we'll do it peacefully, and that will be the closest we can get to shalom. Don't you think? I think that's often how it, it comes down to it. But the challenge of this series in Acts, though, is that while we've identified that what we want is some common ground of goodness and truth and beauty and peace, there are some very different versions about how we get that, and they are not compatible with each other. And so today as we finish up our series and we talk about how this communal longing we have for the good life and shalom fits in with competing philosophies in life, we are going to jump into Acts 17 and we are doing things old school this week. There will be no slides, so you have to pick up your Bible. <laughs> this is good for you. You can do this. Acts 17 in your blue Bibles, pull up your phone and I would encourage you to keep it handy because we are going to refer there often. Acts chapter 17. I don't know what page it is. You can find it. <laughs> I don't have one of the, the blue Bibles in my desk at home. I have an ESV app on my phone <laughs> where the pages don't correlate. You got it? 926. 926. Teacher Trisha for the win. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. We're going to read from Acts 17 from verse 16. On your marks? Get set? That's not how usually how we start. Okay. <laughs> All right. Paul has just uh, been in Thessalonica, got run out of town. Then he was in Berea sharing his message. Things got a little heated there. His friends scooted him off to Athens, and we find him in Athens in verse 16, waiting for his friends to join him. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, this is a fun aside in the text. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They were fad listeners. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in temples made by human hands. Noisy by man, sorry. Noisy served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of even your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance, God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, amongst whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Keep your Bibles open. Peter talked to us last week about how if we are going to engage the power brokers, the powers that be in this world with the gospel and the message of shalom, we are going to need to do so with two things, with conviction and civility. It's a great sermon. If you didn't hear it, uh, check it out online or in your podcast lineup at FBC's Davis Sermons. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to use this conviction and civility lens through which to look at the passage, shall we? And we're going to learn from Paul again how he did this in the practice. We're going to start with civility. Now we can be sure that Paul practiced civility in the sense that he had good manners. Okay? We can be sure that he spoke with respect and humility and with courtesy. I am absolutely sure that he said please when he asked people to pass him the matzah. And when they did, he said thank you. Okay? But civility is more than good manners. It actually has to do with engaging uh, with people in a way that listens to them and honors where they're at. It sees them and sees where they're coming from. And Paul was a master for listening out for and looking for points of connection between him and others. In his letter to the Corinthians, he appealed to them to do this as well. He said, be all things to all people in order that you may win some. Win some. I think that's where the word winsome comes from, don't you think? That you can win some? I don't know, I was thinking about that this morning. But anyway, here we see him putting this into practice, that he is looking out for, listening out for points of connection between him and others. St. Augustine famously said that all truth is God's truth. And by, by that, he meant that whenever we see snippets of truth and beauty out in the world, even in the context where people don't acknowledge him, it still somehow reflects the truth and the beauty of God, even if people don't give him credit for the idea, the beauty, the creation. And Paul does exactly this. He looks around and he sees idols all around, which grieve him, but he sees behind that idol the shared truth that people by nature are worshippers. And that's the point he can connect with. 
He says, I see you are very religious. And he honors their curiosity about spiritual things. That's a great starting place, don't you think? Pastor Steve's advice to me um, on engaging with social media when I'm often confronted with things that are very confusing or very contradictory to what I believe um, is just to, to go on there and be a person of grace. Like, affirm what you can affirm, is what he said. Affirm what you can affirm. You don't have to comment on everything, but you can look for points of connection. You can congratulate people on birthdays and graduations and um, how beautifully their kid is growing up. You can honor bits of truth and beauty where we see it. And this is exactly what Paul is doing here. When he is invited in this passage to speak at the Areopagus, which is really like the TED Talk stage of the ancient world, right? Like this is the original TEDx stage. He doesn't start leading from his own scriptural worldview that people don't know about. He starts from a point of civility by quoting two of their own poets and then drawing on the truth from there. Can you see how civility works in practice in this passage? And it's the wisdom of civility that knows when to throw in a movie reference or, you know, we don't talk about you know who know. You know what I'm talking about. Like, and to use that as a point from which to go with people. Verse 24, it says, all the earth is the Lord's. And so there is a huge breadth of earth out there that belongs to the Lord that we can draw from as we connect with people, even if we don't share their worldview. We can connect with others over shared grief. We can connect with people over wanting to choose kindness. We can connect with people over not wanting children and women to be vulnerable. We can connect over the beauty of sunsets and the deliciousness of ice cream. And we can show respect to cultures that we don't share. I can sit shiva with my Jewish neighbor when they lose their mother-in-law. You know, and I cannot eat bacon at my Muslim relative's house. We can show civility by participating in shared life and shared truth. We can participate in vigils and community cultural celebrations. We can rally together for justice. But friends, if all we do is devote our lives to finding common ground, we will fall short of helping people find God's shalom. Because civility and common ground can only take us so far. The truth is that there are distinctives to our faith. And unless we also share conviction about those and are truthful about it, how will people know if we don't tell them? If all anyone has ever heard is the opinions of philosophers and other religions, how will they find the shalom that God is promising? We need to go further than finding common ground. I'm going to invite my friend Michaela up for a little testimony. Aren't you excited? You should be. Stand here. That's, that's a lot of people. Um, so speaking of common ground, I want to share a little story with you guys about my son this morning. I had every intention of having him up here, my seven-year-old, so you guys have something cute and fluffy to look at. <laughs> and uh, I told him I'll be very nervous, and he said, that's okay, Mom, I'll be with you. And I told him, okay, but you'll have to skip Sunday school. So he looked at me and go, you got this, right, Mom? <laughs> so those of you with newborn, that's what you got Looking to look forward to. 
Once you know, or once you think you got parenting figured out, they do something, and it's just like poof. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Step back so that my microphone can be on at the same time as yours. Um, friend, tell me about the household you grew up, your worldview growing up. So I grew up in the household that um, was very, very anti-Christianity. I was raised to think about um, Christians as the white ghosts. And we worship our ancestors through offering um, burnt money, burnt houses, to ensure that they would have a prosperous life in the afterlife. And in doing so, we also have to make a lot of money. So we worship money a lot because it's the way for us to gain the material needs in order to offer those sacrifices to our ancestors. Okay. And then um, one day you heard something different. Tell me about how um, this unknown God appeared in your life and a little bit about what happened after that. So throughout my life, people have always been really willing to share about their faith with me, even though they know that I was very anti-Christian um, and that I didn't believe in Jesus and what he came in this world to do. And one of my dearest friends, who is sitting in the audience, um, shared with me during her time of trial what Jesus was doing for her. He sat with her during her car rides from school to work, and he sat with her while she cried, and he sat with her while she was just going through the toughest time of her life. And I listened, nodded my head, and go, okay, that's a good story. I walked away. And then a year later, I also was facing trials in my life. And I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be nice to have someone, this Jesus, to sit in the car with me while I'm driving and being stuck in traffic in the causeway? So I decided to come to church to find out who's this Jesus that sits and stands with me through my trials. And um, through my preliminary understanding about him, he got me through the biggest I guess, change or the biggest um, uprooting in my life. And I became the person that I am today because I believed that when no one else could do it, I believed that he was capable of putting me back together again from the fallen pieces that I was during my trials in life. That's so great. Okay. I, you want to quickly share about the new thing you've just learned about God in the last few weeks? Yes. So, um, I told you guys that my preliminary understanding of God being a powerful God and that he's capable of what humans cannot do. Um, I went through the discipleship series with Bronwyn and Scott and Neil, and um, my group walked me through the Kaira circle. I am now in a space in my life where I'm ready to take the next step, but I was held back by fear. I always thought, well, what if Jesus wants me to go this way? And I go, well, that looks better. I'm going to walk this way. <laughs> well, what's going to happen then? Am I going to be alone? And am I going to be walking through another, another trial and then crawl back to Jesus when I'm wrong? And my home group with walking me through the Kairos circle made me realize that that's not Jesus. He walks with me. If I decide to walk this way, he's coming with me and he wants to be ever-present in interval went into any decisions that I make in my life. And so this next step that I'm taking in understanding God and understanding Jesus is just learning more about his compassion and his love 
and how he wants to be in my life. That's so great. Thank you, Michaela. There are so many things I love hearing about what God is doing in in Michaela's life, but what strikes me about her story against the backdrop of of Act 17 is that she's someone who grew up with lots of philosophies and idols around, and at some point, someone shared the unknown God with her, both in kindness and civility and actually with clarity and conviction. And she had discovered and is still discovering what Paul talked about in here, that that God is not far away, he's near. He's near and always hoping that people will reach for him. And you are taking, you are still reaching for him. And I love that. Okay. Um, But before that, before this, she was like all of us. And she didn't know what she didn't know. Isn't that the truth? You just don't know what you don't know. Just like uh, a certain picky eater that will not be named in my house who says, I don't eat that. I don't like that, and I think, you never tried it. You know? Or another person who shall not be named in my house, who's like, I do not want to go to Disneyland. I'm like, dude, you've never been there. <laughs> right? You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> and now that he's had the experience, he would say something different about it. But we don't know what we don't know. And friends, the truth is that there are a vast number of people around us who are aware that there is a Christian faith, aware that there is a person called Jesus, very handy swear word, Um, but it's also true that the vast number of them just don't know what they don't know. They don't know who they're rejecting. They don't have facts. And the God of the Bible and Jesus, while a household name in this community, is still functionally an unknown God to most of the people around us. And this is where conviction comes in, because people can't guess their way to knowing about this God. They need to be told. They need to be introduced. Somebody told me about Jesus, and that's how I heard. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And so for all the civility and connection and common ground that we make in engaging people, there is also a time where we need to address the fact that people might be ignorant about this God, that they may not know because someone hasn't spoken plainly to them. Trisha was just saying to me this morning that she was in college before she heard the gospel. She grew up in Orange County. And she just hadn't heard that Jesus was a real historical figure until someone told her. We're not talking down to people, but we need to speak across that divide. Because people don't know what they don't know. And sometimes we need to proclaim the unknown. So here are five undeniable, unavoidable distinctives that Paul raises in this passage that are particular about this God who is the God of Shalom. Look down at your passage with me quickly. In verse 24, he says, this God is the creator. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He made it all. We didn't make him. We didn't make him up. He made us. And he gave us imagination, right? But contrary to many worldviews out there about where we come from, our convictions are are clear and distinctive. This God created us. That's point number one. Point number two. Verse 25. He's the sustainer. 
This God doesn't need us. Rather, we need him. He gives life and breath and everything else to us. Take a breath in, breath in. That breath you just took, God gave it. Without him, zero breaths are taken. And maybe you have been unaware of this your whole life, but let me tell you this this morning. You were created on purpose, intentionally, with thought and love and skill and care by the Creator. And every breath you have taken and every beat of your heart and every cell division that has happened in your body is because of him. In case you were curious. Okay, point number three, verse 26, look with me. He's the ruler of it all. In verse 26, he explains that this God made all the nations of the world from one man, and he has given people the whole earth to inhabit, and he has marked out the periods of history. That word is actually kairos. You know, that Michaela was, he's marked out the times of history, and he's marked out the boundaries of where people will live, and that is his prerogative because he rules it all. And he goes on in verse 27 to say he did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him. And what a shock to the ancient world where people thought that if you were in the boundaries of Israel, you had the Israelite God. But if you crossed the border, there was a different God in charge. No, this God is the ruler of all of the boundaries. And he's near to everyone. And the Athenians listening to him talk didn't know that they were living and moving and existing in the presence and care of this omnipotent God, but they were, and somehow even their own poetry reflected that they had an inkling that there was a God who was near. Number four, he's the creator, sustainer, the ruler, what else? Verse 29, this God is father to us. We are his offspring, was a a quote from their own poetry. And it is true in the general sense uh, that all humanity is made in his image. Ephesians 3 says that actually all um, all of humanity, all all of fatherhood gets that identity from him. And what the gospel makes clear is that through Jesus, God wants to make that father relationship that much closer and that much more personal. And that's something Paul explains at length in other places And we have talked about at length in other sermons, so we will move on. For the purposes of his concluding and fifth Athenian TED talk, Paul makes this fifth point. That God who is creator and sustainer and ruler and father is also the judge of everything. Look with me at verses 29 through 31, where he sums it up. He says, you should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver, an image Or dare I say a philosophy or a religion that is made up by human design and skill and imagination. He isn't. And in the past, God may have overlooked such ignorance because people don't know what they don't know. But now they do. And he calls on us to repent. By which we mean that you change your mind about him and you change your allegiance towards him. That's what repentance means. It doesn't mean just generally feeling guilty. It's a change of mind and a change of allegiance. Because he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man who he has appointed. And honestly, friends, in a world where justice, injustice feels so rampant, that is really good news to me. It's really good news. 
And Paul finishes his presentation by pointing out that God has not just left us with a bunch of words and a new philosophy and hopes that we'll choose his version of reality over all of the other versions of reality that the other philosophers are coming up with. He says God has actually left proof of this. He's left evidence. And Christianity makes itself vulnerable to uh, people's speculation in a way that other religions don't because it, it puts its claims up for public scrutiny. It doesn't just say, believe me, because I said so and because I really feel that it's true in my heart. It says, God has given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. And everything hinges on whether the claims of the resurrection are true. Whew. So let's look at what God is doing, Paul is doing here. He's practicing civility. He's making many points of connection. And we can do this too. We share a longing for shalom and human flourishing, and we can be civil and kind and engage wisely and broadly with the culture around us. We can do that. That's what Paul's doing. And he shows conviction. And he honestly shares with people the points of distinction so that those who don't know can have the opportunity to know about, and not just know about, but actually know personally God and find their way to shalom. You do you kindness and tolerance will not lead to God's shalom any more than any of the best philosophies of the ages will. But there is a God. And he's a creator and sustainer and ruler and father and judge. And he makes a claim on your life. He actually cares what you think about this. And the path to shalom is through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus. And no one can come to the Father except through him. So my question for you this morning is, which way do you lean, friends? Are you someone who, if you're a person of faith, needs to work on making better connection with people? Do you need to work on the civility part? on good engagement, on building bridges, on helping people connect the dots, on listening out for things you have in common with people in modeling the shalom life. Because honestly, for many years of my Christian life, I was so wrapped up in a Christian bubble and really anxious about avoiding the evils of this world that I did not make many connections with the world around me. That was something I needed to work on. Or do you need to work on the conviction part? And share what's distinctive about our God. Because I confess that the longer that I get comfortable in tolerant and charming Davis, the more I need this challenge. Because how can people believe unless we tell them? How will they be set free from sin unless they meet Jesus? If they don't meet Jesus, all they can do is try harder. But Jesus can actually forgive and set people free and give life? How will they find healing unless they meet the God who can actually heal? Not just find spirituality or a therapist. I believe in therapists. Therapists are great, but we need Jesus. And God is near. He's near, and he is hoping that people will reach out and find him. But to many people around us, he is unknown. He is an unknown God. And I wonder if anybody has actually asked you, have you considered Jesus personally? Do you know what he said and did? Or if you've ever 
talked with that friend that you've been having lunch with for years and asked them whether they have considered Jesus. I have two more quick things I want to note from the passage and then I'm done. First, I want to note the feelings. This whole passage starts with Paul killing time in Athens. He's supposed to be waiting for his friends. Um, He's like scrolling right through Athens. Um, But as he looks around the city and sees the idol, it tells us that he's greatly distressed. And the Greek word for that is directly what we get our English word for, for a paroxysm. Isn't that a fancy word? You get a lot of Scrabble points if you play paroxysm. Um, But it means a sudden attack or a violent expression of emotion. And Paul looks around Athens and he doesn't say, ooh, look at the Acropolis. That's cool. You know, he's, <laughs> he's not marveling at the tourist landscape. He looks at the spiritual landscape and he grieves at how lost and misguided people are. That's the feeling that it evokes in him. And friends, I find that super convicting. The Bible doesn't just teach us how to think and how to behave, although it has great wisdom for us in that. It also teaches us how to feel. And I'm convinced that if Paul was to arrive at the farmer's market on a Saturday morning or to spend the weekend at picnic day or the whole Earth Festival, I mean, maybe he would be charmed by the variety of bicycles we have. Maybe he would love our tolerant and sweet flag-waving community of people all getting along. But I also think that he would be grieved, that he would look around and see a spiritual landscape of well-meaning, lost, sincere And ignorant people who don't know what they don't know. And they're not stupid. The philosophers of Athens were brilliant, learned people, but they just didn't know this God. And he would grieve, I think. And Paul was reflecting God's feelings in this response because we know from the Old Testament that God grieves that he has made people and loved people and we ignore and reject him and it hurts his feelings. He's upset about it. And Paul is upset about it. And so this passage just says to me, well, do I see what God sees when I look at the town around me, when I look at my workplace, when I look at my friends? And do I feel what he feels? That's a question worth asking. And the second note, and I'll close with this, is I just want to note the reactions that Paul got on his sermon. Like, Acts 17 is arguably one of the most famous sermons ever preached. Like, ever. In all of history. Last week's sermon was great, but, you know, this was really famous. But look at the reactions that he got at the end of Acts 17. Kind of meh. Like, if you'd said to Paul, how did it go on Sunday? He would be like, eh. You know, some people were laughed and scoffed. Some people were curious. Some had questions. Some people have decided to follow. And friends, that is just how it goes. Uh, No matter how winsomely or well (laughs) you manage to present the Christian life, that is just how it goes with trying to show and share shalom. Sometimes people will scoff and laugh. Peter referenced Tish Harrison Warren um, last week. And at Easter this year, she wrote an article in the New York Times in which she referenced of the resurrection. And in my own circle of friends here in Davis, I saw on Facebook people quote this article and just, they they shredded it. Historical fact. In the New York Times. They should have better responsible journalism than publishing that kind of rubbish. People are still scoffing. Sometimes people will say no and just walk away. Say, huh, okay. 
And several years ago, I felt deeply convicted that my sister has known our whole life that I'm a churchgoer and a Jesus follower, but I thought, does she actually know what that means? And so convicted, I sent her a gospel of Mark and I wrote her a letter and I told her what Jesus has done in my life and that he was real um, and that there was historical proof that he'd raised from the dead and that he had a claim on her life that she needed to respond to. It was a terrifying letter to write. And she wrote me back and she said, I love you. I really do. And I've read what you said. And I don't want to reorganize my life around someone else. Which was honest. It's heartbreaking. But there it is. At least she's not ignorant. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people will be curious. We just finished Alpha last week. And uh, some people are still in conversation. They want to know more. That's great. Let's keep chatting. And sometimes people will choose Jesus. This God that they didn't know, now they've heard about. And they want him for themselves, like I did when I was six. And like Michaela did six years ago. And you will find the God of Shalom. Because the unknown God knows you. And wants to be known by you. And you can reach out and find him. Can I pray for us? I'm going to finish with praying the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, who wrote a prayer asking that we would be instruments of peace, which really is a prayer that would be, would be instruments of shalom. So pray this with me. Lord, make me, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, may I bring love. Where there's wrong, may I bring a spirit of forgiveness. Where there's discord, may I bring harmony. Where there is error, may I bring truth. That where there is doubt, may I bring faith. Where there is despair, may I bring hope. Where there are shadows, may I bring light. Where there's sadness, may I bring joy. Lord, grant that I might seek rather to comfort than to be comforted. To understand than to be understood. To love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds. It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. And it is by dying to ourselves that one awakens to eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.